This is Abby, and you are listening to Upsound. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take a big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Newsham. I'm a planner in Kansas City, and today I am joined by my friend Chuck Marone, founder of Strong Towns. Hello, Chuck. Hey, it's delightful to see you again. I know. I feel like we're back at it, which is very exciting. Back at it. Yeah. <laughs> back at it. The boys are back in town. So. That's right. <laughs> yeah. How have you been? Good week? Um, you know, I'm not going to complain. Like, I'm here. It's, it's a little too warm. You know, it's like 30 in the 30s here in Minnesota, which, oh. you know, if it's going to be January, give me the cold. They had to cancel the big mm. ice fishing tournament that we have here every year because there's not enough ice, which... um. You know, I haven't done it for over a decade, but uh, it is kind of sad that, um, you know, can't do it. But you got thousands of people out on the ice and they just said they need six more inches and it's not going to happen by the weekend. So it's all done. Wow. Yeah. Sorry to hear that. We do not share the same philosophy when it comes to the cold, but (laughs) I understand that the Minnesota culture really embraces winter in a way that I do not (laughs) Um, Well, I appreciate that anyway. Um, Today we are covering an article that was published in The Atlantic by Alex Coltwitz. It is entitled, The Suburbs Have Become a Ponzi Scheme. So this article is actually, you would think that it's talking about your book, Chuck, but it's actually covering a book that is by Benjamin Harold entitled, Disillusioned, Five Families in the Unraveling of America's Suburbs, Yay, which you have a copy of it. Have you read have the entire thing yet? Um, I am ashamed to say that I have not, although the author wrote me a nice note. And I think I was asked this by my wife. She goes, well, did he ever interview you? And I'm like, I I don't know. And she goes, how do you not know? And I'm like, well, I do like three interviews a week. Like, I don't know. I can't remember every one. But I, I think I might have been interviewed for this book. But I don't know. We'll see. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, you may have a surprise shout out in the book. I don't know. Um, it sounds like you guys need to do a Strong Towns interview together based on I, the title. And I think the that's going to happen. Our team, our team has kind of put that on the list of interviews to do. And I, it's a thicky kind of book, but it looks like it's, uh, yeah. you know, it looks, it, it looks very good. And certainly the Atlantic article, you know, made it sound like I should read it. So, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So just to kind of give an overview of what the Atlantic article covers and what the book is about, it basically explores this trend of thousands of families of color who are moving to suburbia in search of the American dream, only to discover that they are left holding the bag. And it follows five families from uh, Chicago, Atlanta, Dallas, Los Angeles, and Pittsburgh. And these families basically moved out of the cities into the suburbs, driven by the prospects of having better schools and all the other things that are kind of sold in this package of the American dream. And and they have experienced the decline 
of those places uh, rather than, you know, having all of the benefits that were sold to them. And this kind of adds a different perspective and layer to this Ponzi scheme dynamic that Strong Towns talks about so much from a financial perspective and the perspective of development patterns in, in the suburban world. So I'm glad we suggest you suggested that we cover this this article and this topic. It's fascinating. How do you how do you see these layers working together? Well, I wrote this in in Strong Towns in the first book, the Bottom Up Revolution. That if people thought white flight of the 1950s and 60s, which I think is a unnecessarily racialized narrow term, and we can discuss why. But I said, if, if you're sensitive to that, if you're like, this was a bad thing that happened, buckle up because what is going on now, what is transpiring now is going to be way, 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 way worse. This feels like the first book to kind of really seriously take that seriously and document it. The reason I said that is because, you know, when we left poor and, and disadvantaged and, you know, in, in a, to a high degree, minorities uh, behind in inner cities in the 1950s and 60s, we look at that and we have a lot of lament today over how despotic and cruel that was. Um, but we left people behind in neighborhoods that were largely coherent. These were not places that we were taking care of very well, right? Um, these were not places where we were maintaining the parks and not places where we were maintaining uh, stuff. But you could still walk down the street to a store in most of these places. You could still get on a bus and get to a job. As the Ponzi scheme aspect of suburbanization unwinds itself, and we find that we are walking away from places that are built further and further out, um, what we see is that when we leave poor people behind in these places, they're uninhabitable by poor people. The kind of anti to participate in suburbia is a car. Because if you take away the car and you try to put transit in or you try to walk or bike, you're talking miles away from things. And not miles like a, an urban walk mile, but a suburban walking through the ditches, walking through the stormwater drainage area, trying to walk on the side of a road where you might not have much traffic, but all that traffic is going 10, 15, 20 miles over the speed limit. It's very dangerous. It's very despotic. When we abandon people in those kind of places, we create tremendous burdens on them just to live a base level of existence. And I, I, you know, the story in the Atlantic kind of started to peel back that in terms of these five families. And you know, I, I think that this is the story of America. I mean, this is a story of our future, the future of suburbia. And if these stories are just like a first peek, I think it's a it's a preview of coming attractions for a large, large number of people. Due to the the disproportionate balance between um, infrastructure and streets and what it costs to maintain everything in a suburban environment and the actual taxes that are being produced, when you have people who are low income in these areas and everybody with basically the people who are driving the wealth are moving away, it's it just exasperates the entire suburban decline. I was thinking a lot about when I read this article about what decline means in this context. And really, a lot of it has to do with taxes decreasing because the suburban development pattern requires taxes to increase constantly and, and continue going, which is why there's that Ponzi scheme 
discussion and narrative. And depending on how taxes are collected at the local or the county level, it essentially means that if higher wealth individuals are moving away and causing real estate values to decrease and other sources of tax revenue to, to decrease like sales or income tax and then industry leaving as well, it, it creates the situation that people are unable to get even close to sustaining what everything that's been built. And I think that's why mixed income communities are very important and um, not just in a suburban context, but really in all contexts, because you really need to have that balance. And when you have a more compact, denser development pattern, it's a lot less fragile to these changing economic dynamics. No doubt. I grew up in this um, small town in central Minnesota, and I remember the narrative about this place was, well, this is where the poor people in the region live. Um, they care less about their houses. They care less about their neighborhoods. They are, they are in a sense, you know, not like us living out. I lived on a farm, so it wasn't, this wasn't me, but my, my suburban friends who lived in the nicer suburban neighborhoods uh, surrounding Brainerd, they're like, you know, we have very nice things. We keep our things very nice. We take care of stuff. And it's very easy kind of culturally to accept that narrative. In my case, there was no racial component to it because we were all just descendants of Scandinavians for the most part. But in places where there is a racial dimension, I think it's even easier to kind of fall into that mindset of, you know, good people maintaining things, bad people or lesser people uh, don't care, you know, what have you not maintaining things. It, it took me a while to step out of that narrative and ask some questions about how these you know, quote unquote, affluent neighborhoods uh, came to be and how they persist. Because you see, when we go out and build a brand new suburban subdivision, that might be the place with the very high end homes. That may be the place with the like the newest stuff, the nicest things. And in the case of like my community, that's where the school administrator lives and the, you know, the double teacher families and the hospital people and like the, the people who have higher wealth incomes in the area would move to those places. And you can look at it and say, today, it's very nice. It's all perfect. It's all well done. But 25 years from now, every, because everything was built at the same time, everybody everything goes bad at the same time. Everybody's roof starts to go bad at the same time. Everybody's siding needs to be painted at the same time. Everybody's sidewalks start to crack at the same time. And so what happens is that all at once, the neighborhood starts to go into decline, like across the board. And I recognize this because I started to look back at the hot neighborhood from 25 years ago. And what that place was, was the place where all the, let's just say second tier, right? Not the wealthy, but like the working class, that's where they ended up moving. And I recognize that the narrative was actually backward. It wasn't that they didn't care and so they, they cared less and so they moved there and the people who cared more moved to the affluent places. What happened was as soon as the place, the veneer rubbed off, like as soon as that, um, you know, things stopped being shiny and new, because there was no mechanism to maintain it or take care of it over time, because there wasn't the wealth, there wasn't the tax base, there wasn't the renewal mechanism, you couldn't reinvest in the house and get more out of it. You were just an old house in a declining neighborhood. Everybody who was in that affluent class just moved on. They just moved on to the next place. 
And it's not like it happened 60 days later or 90 days later. It happened two decades, three decades later. And so you didn't perceive it as being like a, you know, like a pair of clothes. Like I bought this shirt and now it's no good. I'm going to throw it away and get a new shirt. It happened slower, but it happened nonetheless. The saddest part is that the public investment also started to also aligns with that. So if you live in the poorest neighborhood, which in our case of our community would be like the oldest neighborhoods, right? If you live in some of the oldest neighborhoods, the city just deprioritizes you for maintenance. And so it's not that the people there don't care. It's that nobody, like the city doesn't, why would you go out and mow your yard and put in a flower? Some people do heroically. I think it's amazing. But why would you upkeep your house to tremendous degree when the city is allowing the entire neighborhood around you to fall apart? Exactly. And it's kind of funny. I'm looking out my window in a neighborhood that was built in 1890 that experienced incredible decline uh, over the years during early suburbanization. And it occurs to me that these buildings, because of the way they were built, it seems that they probably were able to withstand decline in a way that these first ring suburbs are probably not due to just construction quality, the way that these places were built. And I think about the context of of this article and in the areas that this author is talking about, they, they mentioned first ring suburbs. And I picture the ones here in Kansas city and even in St. Louis where I'm from originally. And these are areas that were built in the 1950s and sixties, small starter homes, not really constructed in the way that houses were probably constructed before that. And there's different contexts in which these types of houses were built. I think it's worth kind of noting that there's different suburban typologies because when when people who are in a thriving and growing suburban quadrant or half of the metropolitan are reading this, they might not understand Last that yeah. <laughs> like it's it may not, not make any sense. It's not their experience because there are first ring suburbs where this type of housing exists. These houses are getting knocked down by affluent people and new houses are now being built or the houses are being completely restructured and renovated. And that's what's happening in areas, first ring suburbs, where redevelopment and the wealth currently is and, and growth is and reinvestment is possible. But the context of this article is not that suburban area. It's not that typology. It is the the Fergusons of the world, which is, you know, the famous city in St. Louis. And that's a suburban context. And I think that's that's very much aligned with the context that this uh, th- this article and this book is speaking to. Kansas City certainly has an unfavored quadrant, I would say, where it's more uh, lower income people are moving to these suburbs. And I could totally see this dynamic that's being described playing out. And so so this like suburban typology discussion, I think is a worthwhile one to have because there are suburbs where this growth mechanism is just continuing on. I think that they would see this article and, and think that we're talking about suburbs of all types. And it's we don't really talk about kind of the distinctions and nuances of of these types. Yeah. When I think of your neighborhood, and I have not been to your your current neighborhood, but as you've described it to me and as you described it here, 
I think, and I start chapter three of the next book, Escaping the Housing Trap, with this insight. We look around neighborhoods like that and we see quality construction. We see good homes, right? We see them quality built. But what we're really seeing is what has survived 100 years, right? All the stuff that was not quality is gone, is like long gone, right? And the thing about a neighborhood like yours, a neighborhood like mine here in Brainerd, where, where I live, where I live in a house that was built in 1914, it's a very high quality, it's a really nice house. But I live in a neighborhood of houses with lots of different qualities, lots of different types, lots of different price points. And that would have been the same in your neighborhood too. A lot of houses that were built there originally were built um, with the idea that they would either be added onto or tore down. And a lot of them probably were ultimately torn down, either redeveloped or their parking lots today, or there's some, you know, there's something else than what was originally there. The difference with the post-war development pattern, the difference between this like auto-oriented suburbia Ferguson being you know an immediate post-war suburb is that they weren't designed at different price points they were designed in a sense a neighborhood at one price point and so there isn't a chance to in a sense filter and and have different people at different stages it's all at, it's 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 like an all or nothing thing the second thing is that it imposed a stasis on it that means this pass fail situation you are either going to have uh, a house that works at its original price point with the original people around it, or it's going to, in a sense, devolve. And I, I, I say that in terms of structures, not in terms of humans, but I think there's a human aspect to this. It's going to move to a lower price point all at once as a neighborhood. And that downward pressure is going to keep going until either one, it gentrifies, which is itself not a happy outcome, or two, uh, it just becomes the, the the neighborhood that's left holding the bag in a Ponzi scheme. Ponzi schemes end with someone getting screwed over. I mean, that's the whole nature of it. And so when I say that it's a suburban Ponzi scheme, I am really envisioning um, more than just a mechanism of robbing uh, the new to pay for the old. I'm saying at some point, someone, and in, and I think the case of suburbia, a large number of Americans get caught in the situation described in this book, in this situation described in this article where you bought into something as a dream, you bought into something thinking, you know, this would happen. And what happened was the opposite. You were left with maintenance you can't afford, repairs nobody makes, a city that walks away from your neighborhood, um, a, a, you know, a neighborhood in chronic decline that cannot be reversed. I think that is the tragedy of this whole system. Well, and when you add the social, the socioeconomic layer onto that and think about how that plays out in terms of the people living there and what kind of political capital they have to advocate for themselves, I mean, I think we can assume how that story might end or how it might play out in terms of just the, the ability for certain areas to continue to sustain themselves for some amount of time. Uh, even if they are, because they're advocating for public subsidy to, to support the development pattern. So what happens when the people who require public subsidy in their development pattern really are lower income people that have less political capital? You're right. Let me say it in an even sharper way. Part of the underlying uh, mechanism that makes suburbia work is public subsidy. 
So when the affluent people want their neighborhood sustained, they use their affluence and their connections to acquire more public subsidy to stay in that place. When when you lose affluent people and people become poorer in those neighborhoods, they tend to be less have less political clout, less politically connected. They wind up on the short end of the stick when we're handing out the limited public subsidies that there is, and then their neighborhoods experience this decline. And once you you get a, a neighborhood that is, in a sense, dominated by disenfranchised people, people who are poorer on the spectrum, uh, the lack of ongoing subsidy rears its head in like the worst way, right? I think one of the hardest things to get through to people who are suburban dwellers is they they don't recognize how much of their existence is propped up by federal subsidy, state subsidy, local tax transfers, decisions at city hall to we have, you know, $10 million we need to spend. We only have $1 million. Let's pick the affluent neighborhood to spend that in and the other 9 million and the poorer neighborhoods don't get it. This is common routine thing that we do. And I think people don't appreciate it until they they cross over and get on that shorter end of the straw in a sense. Well, I'm really looking forward to you and the author of this book doing an interview together. That is going to be very, very interesting. Well, uh, hopefully it's sooner rather than later. Can I talk a little bit about the, the racial element of this? Please. Um, I Because it, it's very poignant, right? And there's a there's a conservative joke that has been around a long time, and I, I do think it's it is insightful. It is a, a joke about headlines for newspapers. And the the headline, this is a conservative joke. The headline for the New York Times is Asteroid to Destroy Earth, uh, Women and Minorities Hardest Hit. And the reason it's it's kind of a funny like truism is that there's a certain group of uh, of people who, when they see a, a tragedy layout in front of them will look at the people they consider the most disadvantaged and the most vulnerable, and they'll hold them up as like the avatar of the problem, right? In this case, I read this article in The Atlantic. I've kind of perused the book a little bit. And we're focusing on families, non-white families that are struggling. And there's a certain kind of racialized narrative that comes with this. And to the extent that minority equals higher rates of poverty – I can understand that conclusion and I can understand that um, dimension to it. Let me say this. I think if we are talking about how we prevent this from happening and if we ta- we're talking about how we shift policies and change things, we have to be able to talk about this in as broad a terms as possible. I go to my little hometown here and I'm when I, I joke sometimes that, you know, we have a lot of diversity. We have Scandinavians of all different descents. We have Finns and Swedes and and Norwegians, you know. Um, but the reality is, is that all the dynamics discussed in this article happen in my hometown, despite a lack of racial diversity, despite a lack of um, you know, the 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 types of things that are brought out in the Atlantic article as being the drivers of this. The underlying driver of this is economic despair and economic disadvantage. The suburban development pattern does take poor people and make them poorer. It takes middle-class people and makes them poorer. And it aggregates uh, wealth in affluent neighborhoods in a way that is temporary and illusory, but allows them, in a sense, to uh, a dwindling number of them to escape 
I don't know if you noticed, but I was quoted in the Atlantic article. There's actually a quote from me, and I it's one of my I think it's a great quote. It's one of my favorite quotes. Um, it says the, the 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 suburban development pattern is a Ponzi scheme, and it says, quote, it's the development version of slash and burn agriculture. We build a place, we use up the resources, and when the returns start diminishing, we move on, leaving a geographic time bomb in our wake. That, no doubt, will hurt the most disadvantaged people the most. And to the extent that in North America, in the United States, that is people of color and, and minority neighborhoods, that is a true, there's a racial component to this. But in terms of talking about it as a solution that we all have a part in, this is every city in America. This is every place in North America. If your city is predominantly black, predominantly white, it really doesn't matter. You are experiencing these same dynamics and they are cruel and they are merciless and they are not helping people at all. And I, I, I feel like you know, the racial element might motivate a lot of people to, to take this seriously. I think the universal aspect of it can motivate a lot more. And I, I would like to see us talk about this in a way that recognizes that this is everywhere. This is every neighborhood. Like we, even if you don't identify with the narrative of this book or did identify with a narrative of the Atlantic article, um, this does impact you in a big, big way. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a really good point. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to your guys' discussion. <laughs> that will be a good a good talk. Uh, we'll end it there, but before we finish today, it is time for the down zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that has been taking our time and attention, uh, anything we've been reading, watching, listening to. Uh, Chuck, I'm going to throw it to you. I've been talking too much, so you go first, all right? Okay. Because I, I always go first on the down zone. You should go first. Okay, I will go first on the down zone today. Um, so I actually this week saw a really good Broadway musical that was performing in Kansas City uh, called A Girl from North Country. It is It integrates Bob Dylan songs into this story about a girl in Duluth, Minnesota, uh, during the American Great Depression era, and it basically follows this group of like wayward travelers staying in a guest guest house, and there's all this drama that ensues, and it's really well written. It's actually quite funny. It's funnier than I expected it to be, and um, they actually give a shout out to Brainerd, Minnesota, in part of it. So you know, if you ever get the opportunity, you should definitely go see it. I mean, they don't use cheesy Minnesota accents, do they? They don't use cheesy Minnesota accents, right. no. We'll <laughs> yeah, so that was a lot of fun. I saw it at the uh, Kauffman Center, which is a beautiful building in the downtown of Kansas City, and it was a lot of fun. Wonderful. I'm glad you yeah. had that experience. You know, um, this was not my down zone, but I'll say uh, my kids were really, really excited. I have two daughters. They were very excited because Timothy Chalamet – uh, was cited cited in Minis in northern Minnesota. Oh, He's really? Actually, yep, he was in Hibbing, Minnesota this week um, because that's the home of Bob Dylan. And apparently, he is going to play Bob Dylan in an upcoming movie and wanted to come to to get the northern Minnesota experience. So, yeah, it was. There were pictures of him working with the theater students up in Hibbing, and it was it's pretty cool. Yeah, that's great. Excellent. Yeah. So, All right. Well, what have you been up to? I started a new book this week called Tracers in the Dark. And um, I would like to say that I knew this would happen, but I, 
I, I, I didn't voice it in a way, and I don't think I fully understood. This is a book about the people who track, uh, figured out uh, who owned Bitcoin and who the criminals were using Bitcoin. Bitcoin is supposed to be untraceable, um, but it's untraceable uh, because there's this public ledger of all the transactions. And the reality is, is with, with very little detective work, if you know who one person was and they transacted with another person, and then you know who another person is and they transact, you can start to do the six degrees of Kevin Bacon and basically like figure out uh, because of the public nature of the ledger, um, who everybody is. You can start to say, well, okay, we figured out this is you. So then this is you and this is you and this is you and this is you. And because of all that, uh, we know that, you know, this, and we can start to trace these together. And they basically have gone around now and all these people, these criminals who were doing criminal things with Bitcoin, thinking it was completely untraceable. They've just run up and like blocked up all these people, arrested a whole bunch. Um, because it is not, um, your, your transaction is, in a sense, encrypted, but the transaction is also very public. And so it is not, in a sense, anonymous. It's very, very public. Your identity is anonymous, but once revealed or once connected to other people, you, you lose that blanket of an anonymity very quickly. It's a fascinating book, kind of a quick read. And uh, if you're sitting out there listening to this thinking, I'm going to have Bitcoin because I'm going to, you know go against the government or what yeah. have you. I've always thought you were kind of <laughs> like, again. I didn't believe that story, but uh, yeah. this book will dissuade you of that very quickly. So yeah. yeah. Hopefully you would be dissuaded to do that anyway, but yeah. <laughs> well, I always uh, figured that with Bitcoin, if the whole purpose was to like me versus the government, um, <laughs> trust me, like I'm not a pro central government kind of person, but you know, that story seemed like it would fall apart very quickly, but. Wow. Read the book. It's pretty good. Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency by Andy Greenberg. Very good book. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like a very entertaining read. I'll have to add that to my list. All right. Well, thank you very much, Chuck. Good talking to you today. I'll see you next week. Likewise. Thanks, Abby. Take care. Take care. Thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode of Upzone. Let me show you what I'm about to do.